Good morning, everyone. Again, my name is Jordan, and it is really, really wonderful to be here. I mean, one of the joys of doing RUF is that uh, you don't preach on Sundays, uh, and so you get to come to different churches in the Presbyterian preach. And so it really is a joy to be with you, uh, it's, and it's an honor to do RUF at Texas and really to stand on the shoulders of giants such as Derek. Um, let me read for us our passage this morning, which is going to come from Luke 18. And there it is printed for you, but Luke 18, 9 through 14, if you would like to read along in your Bibles, here it is. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, This is God's word. It's absolutely true, and it's written to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come into this room tired of listening to ourselves, uh, tired of listening to the world, and we would rather listen to you. And so I pray that you would speak to us and that we might hear in your son's name. Amen. Well, in 2016, uh, the comedian Jim Carrey gave a famous speech at the Golden Globe Awards. And you can find the speech online. Um, The MC calls Jim Carrey to the stage and he says, Please welcome now to the stage two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. And uh, Carrey then takes the mic and and in a a way only a comedian can, begins like this. He says, thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. And then he says, you know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep, but I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true, and I could stop this terrible search. Now, putting aside the fact that I've always thought that your senior pastor actually looks a little bit like Jim Carrey, uh, here's what I want to say. I want us to hear, am I right? (laughs) I want us to hear again this word, enough. Because then I would be enough. This word enough, it's truly a word that haunts us and that rings in our ears. Listen to what one author named David Zoll says. He says, if you listen carefully today, you'll hear this word enough everywhere. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. And so our passage this morning forces us to ask, where do we find our enoughness? That's our question. And two points as we answer this question. First of all, the game that we all play, and secondly, the gift that we all need. So the game and then the gift. First, the game. 
Well, turning back to the passage, the first thing I want us to notice here is the context of Jesus' parable. Look at verse 9. It says, He told this parable to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So righteous. I mean, this is a good Presbyterian word, right? I mean, what does this word mean? Well, biblically, the word righteous, of course, means to be right. I mean, it means to be holy and and upstanding before God and, and before other people. But I believe really the closest synonym we have to this word righteous today is, again, the word enough. I mean, to be righteous is to be enough. And so when someone trusts in themselves to be righteous, what they are saying is that what makes me enough is me. And so it should be no surprise then that in our passage, I mean, what is the Pharisee's favorite word? It is I. I mean, listen to him. Listen to how he talks in verse 11. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, in two verses, five times, he uses this word, I. But clearly, I mean, this self-righteousness game has changed. I mean, there was certainly this old school approach to self-righteousness, which was more obviously religious. And, and, and this is the approach of the Pharisee in the passage. Uh, this is someone who thinks that if they have regular quiet times and, and if they tithe enough and if they give enough and if they go to church enough, that will make them enough. And while certainly this is still an option, there's also, I believe, this new school approach to self-righteousness. And it's what, again, David Zoll calls seculosity. And I love this word. Okay, here's what it means. The idea is that uh, while Americans may be going to church less and less, the reality is that we're just as religious as ever. Our religion, our religiosity, has simply shape-shifted and has attached itself to new and secular things. And so we're religious, but we're secular. Seculosity, religious, secular religion, seculosity. That's the idea. Then more than ever, again, when we continue to create these these rules and, and these systems and these philosophies in order to control our lives and to convince ourselves that we're okay, to convince ourselves that we're better than other people. I mean, here are a few examples of seculosity. Here's one, uh, parenting. So uh, I'm a parent of two young kids, and so I know very well, as many of you do, that parenting is hard. And that it's fraught with uncertainty. And so what do we do? I mean, we create these different sort of parenting styles or philosophies. And we say, okay, if you do this, that, and the other, then you are a good parent. And if you do X, Y, and Z, uh, your kids will wind up great. And they will get into the University of Texas, right? Um, or or talk, let's talk about food for a second. I mean, today, people are obsessed with food. I mean, people identify as foodies, especially in Austin. Uh, and, and we describe, we've gone so far as to describe some foods as good and others as bad. Like even though God made all of them, some are now bad. And this actually changes. I mean, think about butter. I mean, butter used to be bad, but now suddenly it's good. It doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, gluten, uh, bread used to be good, and now gluten is the enemy. And again, this is religious language. Uh, and not only this, but if you actually eat the right foods, uh, you can live forever and you can save the planet, right? Which is great. Uh, what about technology? Here's a final one. So for some people, I mean, technology is their salvation. Uh, the other day I heard someone say, my phone is the most important thing that I own. Uh, that's a religious statement. But other people say, I'm actually holy because I'm not on my phone and I unplug. I mean, 
I'm not on Instagram or Facebook, or, or when I am, at least I'm not obnoxious, and I don't post as much as him or as much as her. So whether it's this more old-school religiosity of the Pharisee or, again, this new-school seculosity, I mean, how do you know? How do we know if we are looking to ourselves for our enoughness? Well, here's some signs that we see in our passage. The first sign of self-righteousness uh, is that it always ends in comparison. It always ends in comparison to other people. We see this in verse 11, where again the Pharisee says, Lord, thank you that I'm not like other men. Other men. Because, I mean, friends, when we look to ourselves for enoughness, ultimately we will be obsessed with the details and behavior of other people's lives. That's just what happens. Because in order to be, for me to be enough, there has to be a ladder and there have to be people underneath me. So what do we say? We say things like this. Uh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like them. Uh, have you seen how much screen time they give to their kids? Uh, we don't even own a TV. And uh, we would never, under any circumstances, give our kids an iPad at a restaurant. I mean, again, this is what I hear as a young parent. Or maybe it's politics, right? We say, uh, Lord, thank you that unlike some people, I haven't bought into the lies of the liberal media. Or we say the opposite of that. We say, Lord, um, thank you that I'm not like him. I mean, I might be a straight white male, but at least I read the New York Times, right? I mean, we're always doing this. And we're always comparing ourselves to other people. But notice in verse 11, it says the Pharisee stands by himself as he prays. And friends, ultimately, this is what self-righteousness costs us. It actually makes us lonely because in the end, we must distance ourselves from other people. As the writer Fleming Rutledge says, whenever we are sure that we are among the righteous, we immediately find ourselves among the arrogant. And that is true. Here's a second sign of it, uh, scorekeeping. Scorekeeping, which is to say keeping a running tally of all of our successes and of all other people's failures. Uh, it's like in the NBC comedy, The Good Place. Any of you watch the show, The Good Place? So uh, in The Good Place, here's the basic premise. The basic premise is that um, when you die, you either go to the good place or you go to the bad place. And uh, whether your destiny is determined ultimately by how many points you receive in life. So uh, you get points for everything. Everything is either addition or subtraction. So uh, for example, in the good place, if on earth you remember your sister's birthday, you get 15 points. If you remain a loyal fan of the Cleveland Browns, you get 53.83 points. Hard to do. <laughs> um, if, you, if you maintain your composure while waiting in line at a water park in Houston, they didn't know about Schlitterbahn, in Houston, you get 61 points. If you eat vegan, you get 432 points. If you let someone merge in traffic, you get over 12,000 points. But uh, you can also lose points. So rooting for the Yankees is minus 99. Um, overstating your personal connection to a tragedy that has nothing to do with you is minus 40. But I mean, it's funny, but I mean, when we're self-righteous, this is what we do. I mean, we're always keeping score. And, and life is no longer actually a gift to enjoy, but it's a game. I mean, life becomes a game whether you're, where you're either winning or you're losing which you're always either getting ahead or you're falling behind. 
And that's what we see our, the Pharisee doing here, numerically listing his accomplishments before God. I mean, what does he say? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And by the way, uh, do you know how many times the Old Testament law says that Jews should fast twice a week? Zero times. And this is what happens. Because when we start keeping score, we can't stop. I mean, it's totally exhilarating. We just can't stop. And we always need to do more and more. And we always need to more and more inflate our own accomplishments. Here's a third sign. Denial. One of the things we don't see the Pharisee talking about here is his failures. I mean, he has a selective memory, right? And we do too. And this is like another NBC comedy, and that is The Office. Um, if you didn't watch this show, The Office, there's this character in The Office named Dwight. And, and, and Dwight is uh, the Pharisee of the show. Uh, he is this hardworking rule follower, uh, and he's also very, very nerdy. And so there's this one episode where Dwight insists to The Office that he has never committed time theft, which is to say that he's never stolen any time from the company by taking personal time while he's been on the clock. And so another character named Jim decides to set out to prove Dwight wrong to show him that he actually has committed time theft like every day. So here's what he does. He pulls out a stopwatch, and every time Dwight yawns, he starts the clock. Uh, Every time Dwight sneezes, he starts the clock. Every time Dwight goes to the bathroom, he starts the clock and adds up all the time that he's stealing during the days. And the point again is clear. Everyone steals time. It's unavoidable. And yet, instead of admitting defeat, I mean, Dwight actually doubles down. And so here's what he does. He simply refuses to go to the bathroom. Um, He tries to sneeze with his eyes open so he can still look at his computer. Uh, at, at one point, it's very funny, Jim uh, tries to go, goes around the office trying to distract Dwight by um, spreading lies about the latest episode of Battlestar Galactica, but Dwight refuses to uh, get up and correct him. Again, he, 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 and, but this is what we do. I mean, we often will find ourselves in denial and needing to downplay our own mistakes. And so if you, if you find yourself doing this, if you find yourself downplaying your mistakes, getting defensive whenever someone criticizes you, you're trusting in yourself. And so we might say again, uh, where there's smoke, there's fire, and where there's comparison with other people, and where there's scorekeeping, and where there's denial, there's self-righteousness and self-enoughness down below. And friends, here's the problem with self-righteousness. It's a game that will wear you out. You'll be anxious all the time, you'll spend your days oscillating between either intense pride or intense feelings of failure. Uh, It's a game that's really a treadmill. As many have said, it's a treadmill. And you run and you run and you run and you don't get anywhere. But the bigger problem with self-righteousness is that ultimately it's just a lie. I mean, it's an illusion. It's very tempting, especially in America, to believe that we are basically good people. And that if we just try hard enough and we make good decisions, we can live good and righteous lives. But I mean, again, as you know, in the Bible, self-righteousness isn't even a real live option. Why? Because the story of the scriptures is that we were created good and we were created enough and we were created righteous. But then a foreign invader called sin attacked our world. I mean, it attacked our world like a virus, It took up residence inside of our bodies, 
And it has rendered us powerless and, and, and incapable of actually living good and righteous lives on our own. And that means that if we're actually going to be made well and made enough again, I mean, it's going to have to be a gift that's going to have to come from the outside. It's going to have to come from the outside. So that's point two, the gift. Well, there's a famous author and poet uh, named Mary Carr, and she grew up in East Texas. And, and in, in her memoir, she uh, tells the story of growing up in East Texas. And as a teenager, she actually struggled really, really acutely with depression, had a really, really hard childhood. Uh, and um, one day she became so depressed that eventually she actually decided to kill herself. And she was going to do so by uh, swallowing a bunch of pills and just ending her life. But uh, she swallows all these pills, and it actually doesn't work. Uh, she doesn't die. She just becomes really, really sick. And her parents were out of the house at the time, but her parents come back home to find Mary uh, lying on the floor and, and, again, very, very sick. And they don't realize in the moment that she's tried to commit suicide. They actually just think that she has fallen victim to food poisoning. And... Uh, so after a while, her father asks her if she thinks that there's any food that she could actually stomach and actually hold down. And for whatever reason, sort of in her stupor, for whatever reason in that moment, Mary asks for a plum. Okay, she asks for a plum. And the only problem is that uh, plums were out of season at the time in East Texas, and so Mary just went to bed. But the next morning, uh, she wakes up to see that her father has come into her room carrying a bushel of plums. Her father actually had driven through the night, uh, through Texas, and into Arkansas in order to find plums. And here's what Carr writes about that experience in that morning. She says, it's when you sink your teeth into the plum that you make a promise. The skin of the plum is still warm from riding in the sun in daddy's truck, and the nectar runs down your chin, and you snap out of it, or are snapped out of it. Never again will you lay a hand against yourself, not so long as there are plums to eat and someone who cares enough to haul them to you. That's how you acquire the resolution to live. You don't earn it. It's given. And friends, uh, from beginning to end, this is what the Bible has to say about enoughness. You do not earn it, but it is given. And we see this as we look back at the text. And I want us to look here in point two at this second character in our story, and this is the tax collector. Because this is a man who understands this givenness. This is a man whose uh, life is more or less at its end, sort of like Mary's. And yet there's a father who drives through the night to give him his enoughness. Let's look at this man now. What we see about the tax collector is that he's very different from the Pharisee, right? In fact, they couldn't really be any more different. I mean, first of all, the tax collector, uh, as you know, tax collectors were hired by the Roman government to collect money from the Jews. But everyone knew and during this time that tax collectors cheat. I mean, tax collectors skim off the top. And so if you owe tax collectors $100, they would take $125 and keep the extra $25 for themselves. And so because they cheat, tax collectors are also rich. And because they're rich, they're worldly. I mean, we might say they like girls and, and, and fast cars and late nights. I mean, they're sinners. The second difference between these two men, then, is the way that they walk into church. We see that the Pharisee walks in with his list and with his head held high. 
But the tax collector walks in with his head down. I mean, he doesn't want to make eye contact with the pastor, and he definitely doesn't want to make eye contact with God. And so all he can muster is this short little prayer under his breath. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is a really, really short prayer, but it's a really, really powerful one, and and here's why. Because the Greek word here for mercy is a really, really important word in the Bible. Because it's closely tied to the word for mercy seat in the Old Testament. I mean, do you remember back in the Old Testament when when God has his people build this tabernacle? Uh, He has them build the tabernacle, this tent where, where he would meet with them and where he would cleanse them from their sin. And you'll remember that at the back of the tabernacle was a room, this room called the Holy of Holies. And and, and, and only one man was allowed to enter this room, the high priest, and he was only allowed to enter this room one day a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, uh, this high and holy day for the Israelites, the high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies, and he would walk straight back to this seat called the Mercy Seat. And there he would take two goats with him. And the first goat he would kill. He would kill his first goat, and he would sacrifice the goat and sprinkle its blood on the mercy seat. And then he would take the second goat, the one that was still alive, the scapegoat. And he would lay his hands on this goat, and he would speak over this goat the sins of all the people of Israel. All the ways in the past year in which God's people had sinned and rebelled. He would speak all of them over this goat. And then that goat would run out of the tabernacle, out of the tent, and off into the wilderness. And so the mercy seat was this amazing place where once a year, God would say to Israel the beautiful words that your sins are gone. I mean, they have been paid for by blood, and they've quite literally run away. And and so I want you to come back now to our parable. What the tax collector is saying in this moment when he prays to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's saying, God, I need you to meet me at the mercy seat. And I need you to give me a goat. And I need you to give me a substitute. Although I'm a sinner and I deserve death, I need you to kill someone or something other than me. And I need someone or something else to run with my sins out of this place. And friends, the good news of Christianity is that God answers the tax collector's prayer. He answers it because Jesus of Nazareth, the one telling our parable this morning, is both goats. He's both of them. He, he is the one who takes our sins and dies for them. And he is also the one all our sins are spoken over and who carries them away as far as the east is from the west. And so what happens to the tax collector in our parable this morning? He walks in with nothing, but he leaves with everything. I mean, he walks in with hands empty and he walks out with hands full. I mean, he walks in a sinner and he leaves, as we see in verse 14, justified. Justified. It's the same exact word in the Greek as righteous. He leaves enough. So, if you want to be righteous and if you want to be enough, and I think that we all do, all we have to do is accept the gift. We say the prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God says, I already have. 
Just take it. So, how do we know if we're more and more living this sort of life? And we're more and more trusting, not in ourselves, but in God for our enoughness. What are some signs? Well, one sign is that we're just free. Freedom, uh, we, we just have this freedom that comes from not playing the game anymore. I mean, of saying, I'm just not going to play the game. I'm done with the treadmill. I'm done with the self-righteousness game. I'm done with, with what T.S. Eliot called the endless struggle to think well of ourselves. You say, I'm good. I'm out. I'm just not doing it. It's sort of like the alcoholic who goes to AA for the first time. I mean, you develop this healthy sense of disillusionment with yourself. You say, I'm powerless. I'm not really surprised when I hurt other people. I'm not really surprised when I say unkind things or I do unkind things. I don't have to defend myself anymore when people criticize me. I mean, when people criticize me, I can say, you're probably actually right. That's probably true. And it's probably worse than you even realize. You're free. No more game. But another sign is that you pray. You actually pray. And we said earlier that the Pharisee's favorite word is I. And you'll notice in our passage, uh, he pretends to pray. But his prayer isn't really a prayer at all because he doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't ask God for one thing. All he does is list his accomplishments. But the tax collector, he actually prays. I mean, he actually talks different. Uh, uh, you can just look at the very nouns and the subjects of their, of their verbiage and, their, and, their, and the way they talk. See, for the tax collector, God is the subject of the verb and not himself. In religion, we are always the subject of the verb. I do this, I do that. But with Christianity, God is always the subject of the verb. I mean, God is the one who performs. God is the one who has mercy. God forgives. If you notice, you actually heard this in the confession that we said earlier, which is, God, I need you to restore my commitments to you. God, I need you to change me. I don't enter 2022 with this list of things I'm going to do, but I enter 2022 with this list of hopes that God might actually work and do in me. So when we're playing the self-righteousness game, there's really no reason ever to pray. But as we more and more trust in God and not ourselves, prayer flows really freely and really naturally. Okay, so let's wrap up. What I hope we've seen this morning is that all of us are just like really afraid. And uh, we walk through life uh, from the time we were kids to the time we were teenagers and young adults and into old age, really, really afraid that we are not enough, that we will not be enough or that we have not done enough. And, and, and in our fear, the game that we were all tempted to play is the self-righteousness game. Uh, this game where we keep score and, and where we compare and where we deny uh, our sins. But the game actually just leaves us exhausted and it leaves us arrogant and it leaves us alone and it leaves us burned out. But Jesus comes to us this morning and he says, um, if you want to go home today justified and enough, and I think that we do, we have to look outside of ourselves. We must see that enoughness is never earned, it's given, and that we are not the subject of the verb and the subject of our lives, but God is. As we close, um, I want to tell you and leave you with one more story. So uh, a few years ago, there was an article in the New York Times about a young woman named Kelly Catlin. And, and 
Kelly was an Olympic athlete, and, and she won an Olympic medal for cycling at the Olympics in 2016. And she was actually a favorite then to win the gold again in Tokyo in 2020. Um, but about a year before the Olympics, at the age of 20, 23, she decided to take her life. And she had suffered a concussion just a few months before her suicide, and so it's not actually clear the cause of her death. I mean, it could have really honestly have been that her brain just stopped working. Uh, but here's what we do know about Kelly. I mean, the first thing that we know about her is that she was really, really brilliant, and that she was working on a graduate degree in mathematics at Stanford. And we also know that she was extremely driven, uh, that she was voted the most likely to succeed in middle school. We actually know that, also know that she was really, really hard on herself, and ultimately her identity was being a professional athlete. And after her death, um, before she was buried, her sister, she had a sister named Christine, and her sister Christine went over to the coffin at the funeral and put a handwritten note beside her sister. And here's what the note said. Kelly, if I could trade my life for yours, I would. I love you without all your accomplishments. Uh, friends, I think that's what Jesus is saying to us this morning, that on the cross, God traded his life for us, and uh, he whispers to us the words that we all want to hear, and that is that I love you without all your accomplishments. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you again that you're not a God that remains silent, but you're a God who speaks to us. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your scriptures and the words of grace that they whisper to us from beginning to end. Lord, I pray for my friends here that Hope New Braunfels would more and more be a church that rests in the freedom of your gospel and that ultimately extends that grace out into the world, into their neighborhoods, into their schools, and into their city. Lord, if these things are going to happen, uh, they won't happen because of us, but only because of you. And so it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.